So Josh, Halloween is over, or is it? I mean, Turkey Day is right around the corner, so Halloween is very much over in my mind. But why are you asking me in such a creepy way, Myra? (laughs) All right. Well, full disclosure, I might sound a little creepier than usual because I lost my voice over the weekend (laughs) (laughs) and got it back just in time to sound extra creepy. Um, But also because Halloween might be over, but I still have a pretty creepy story to tell. And from what I've heard, this might actually be a better time to tell it seasonally anyway. Well, it's just now getting cold enough as that that night was. <laughs> so this story involves just the perfect brew of suspicion, suspense, and breakfast. I do love me some breakfast brew with a side order of suspicion and suspense. I mean, who doesn't? But yeah, breakfast is a big part of this. Trust me. Here we go. My dad used to take me for what he called builder's breakfasts. They were like these massive breakfasts that he would get before he'd go out building a house. And it was This is me chatting with my colleague Josh Crane about Eaton's Sugar House, a diner slash sugar house in South Royalton that my dad's wood flooring business was around the corner from. Eaton's has had many cool incarnations from a cider mill to a sugar house and eventually a full-time restaurant. And that restaurant was about as Vermonty as Vermonty can get. Because it kind of was like going home. I mean, it was a real friendly p- place and everybody felt comfortable there. I think what made Eaton Sugar House special for many people was the strong sense of place and history that you'd feel when you'd go there. It was this old, large sugar shack type of building with faded wood cedar siding and a rusty green metal roof. And to get inside, you'd walk So yeah, a lot of people went for exactly this quintessential Vermont maple vibe. But if you ask folks where they really went, they'll tell you it was the... Pancakes. <laughs> it, I know it sounds cliche, but I mean, the pancakes with the maple syrup. You can't go to a place called Eaton Sugar Shack and not have that. But I think if anybody has a memory of it, it's probably the pancakes. Pancakes, no question. <laughs> The freaking pancakes were so good, Josh. I don't mean to out myself here, but in my mind, pancakes are basically vessels for butter and maple syrup. So what made them so good? (laughs) No, some pancakes come with like a side of (laughs) godlike experience and trust. I have a very discerning pancake palate. And now I'm extremely hungry. Fair enough. Okay, enough about food. The pancakes were not involved in the creepy part of this story. They're too wholesome to be creepy. You are not wrong. But Eaton's Sugar House, something really spooky did happen there. It was Halloween night, 2019, and for Connie Poulin, owner of Eaton's at the time, the day was already fraught. Well, on a personal note, it was a really bad day for me because that's when my husband died was on Halloween. Yeah, 37 years ago. And the weather was bad. I heard it was raining. It was pouring, and it was super windy. It was raining really hard. So actually, when I was going down there... And yet somehow, despite a rain so hard, it was difficult to drive in. Then I got a phone call, and it, it was from Diane, my sister, and the sugar house was on fire. The front steps of the sugar house were on fire. Oh, man. That is truly 
awful. Yeah, but then they weren't. So I said, okay. So I got in my car and I went down there. And by that time, it was out. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. Crisis averted. Yeah, but I'll tell you, Josh, it didn't end there. So anyway, um, I went home, put my pajamas on. I was just about ready to go to bed. And the phone rings again. And she said it was on fire again. Again? Yes. And the sugar house was on fire in a whole new place. It was ablaze in the back of the building, which I've learned really couldn't have happened naturally. Like it couldn't have just traveled there by wind or something. Yeah. And this time, Josh, it wasn't going out. And I could see the flames from the interstate this time. So it was on fire twice in one night. Yeah. Crazy, right? And like in a horrible rainstorm, when you'd assume it might be tough for a fire to gain traction, at a highly visible place, really, on a high traffic kind of night, Halloween, and that second fire completely reduced the beloved breakfast landmark to ashes. So I wasn't surprised when a question about what caused the fire won our voting round. Of course, the community is curious. So I've spent a good amount of time sleuthing around central Vermont in the Upper Valley and learned that there are a few theories about what happened that night. I have a hunch. I have a hunch. And even more left to the great unknown. I just can't believe that it hasn't been a bigger deal than um, it is. Now, there is no shortage of rumors here. And as we know here at BLS, sometimes we come for the stories, sometimes we come for the mystery, and sometimes... Because whoever did it was a dumbass. Sometimes we come for the tea. What is the tea? Gossip, Josh. It's gossip. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, who's going to light the front of a building on Halloween night? I mean, it's not like... There was nobody around. And then they go back and do it again. (laughs) They're not the brightest jack-o'-lantern on the porch. From Vermont Public Radio, this is Brave Little State. I'm Angela Evansy. Here on the show, we answer questions about Vermont that have been asked and voted on by you, our audience, because we think our journalism is better when you're a part of it. Today, my name is Chris Jacobson. I live in Norwich, Vermont, and I've been wondering. A question about a mysterious fire makes this the first ever true crime BLS. What happened to Eaton Sugar House in Royalton? What caused this suspicious and spooky Halloween night fire that destroyed the landmark? Producer Myra Flynn looked into it and found lots of juicy tidbits. So settle in while she talks through her findings with our colleague, Josh Crane. Wait, can I say suspicious? I would say 100% yes, you can say suspicious. Okay, good, all right. Well, there are already so many suspicious characters here. We have support from VPR sustaining members. Welcome. Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. 
From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. So full disclosure, this episode is proof that you really can't throw a stone in Vermont without hitting someone you know. I know some folks in this episode, and Josh, you've met Chris, our question asker, right? Yeah, I met him once via a friend of a friend, and he mentioned he had this question about what happened to Eaton's Sugar House. I never heard of the place, never had the honor of eating there, but His brief description sounded super mysterious, and so I encouraged him to submit it to BLS, and here we are. Well, I'm so sorry you never got to try those pancakes, but I'm so glad you encouraged him to write us because Chris seems more than curious about what happened to Eaton's. He's invested in getting to the bottom of the matter. He grew up going there with his grandma, and to him, it was an incredibly special place. He came to us at Brave Little State almost bewildered, and not just about the fire itself, after all, buildings burned down, but because so much about what happened that night is still unresolved. Well, this is just a huge mystery for our community, and I just can't believe that it hasn't been a bigger deal than um, it is. And I'm not sure that any of us in the community got an answer about what actually happened that night. Chris says he felt that there was very little reporting on the Eden's fire. Most articles written about the events do throw around impactful words like suspicious and arson, undetermined and active investigation. But they tend to stop at that. So I get why the community is frustrated. The people want answers. But alas, I had to break it to Chris and now to all of you listeners that I am not the police. But I did talk to the police. And according to the sergeant and police chief I'll speak with later... Regarding concrete answers in this case, it's not much. However, talking about what wasn't found is also part of my job. And on that front, I told Chris I might just know someone who can help us out. Are you nervous? <laughs> Don't be nervous. I tell you, the microphone goes on and everyone does this. <laughs> um, well, Myra, I am... Uh, I just kind of fell into it. That's Connie again, owner of Eaton's at the time of the fire. And she's one of the people in this episode who I know. But like, I really know her. Her daughter has been my best friend since age five. And that makes Connie kind of a second mom to me. Growing up, I don't recall Connie ever even working in a restaurant. So it was surprising in 2003 to learn that she bought the sugar house. But she told me at the time she was just looking for something new and her son had already been supplying the restaurant with his syrup for years. It was an easy fit. It was kind of like a turnkey operation. We just walked in, and same staff, same food, same everything, because Lord forbid if you ever change anything on that menu, people love it. Um, Why do you think people loved it so much? Because it kind of was like going home. It was a real friendly place, and everybody felt comfortable there. Um, This one kid would come in. They were black, African-American, and 
I just loved these kids, and this guy loved apple crisp, and I always made sure I had apple crisp for him, and I'd fool around with him like I did with everybody. And after the fire, he called me up, and he said, thank you, Connie, for making me feel at home because it's hard to be a black kid in in Vermont. And I'm, I just started crying. I said, I didn't treat you any differently than I treat anybody, and I just liked you guys. And that's that just made me cry. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel about how you've always treated me, too. Well, you're Myra. <laughs> this fire devastated more than the business it contained. It broke Connie's heart. On a personal note, I haven't even really broached the subject with her one-on-one ever for fear of making her revisit this trauma. So I want to be clear that it's because I'm Myra. Well, you're Myra. (laughs) That I am welcomed in this vulnerable space at all. On a Friday morning, in the house her deceased husband built, awkwardly shoving my microphone in her face. I feel really honored to be here. Sometimes I just go down and look at it. I'm like, oh, this was there, this was there. It just looks so weird with just the foundation. And I happen to know that someone else in this episode really wishes they could be here, too. And Connie has said that she would love to meet you. Oh, my gosh. That'd be amazing. Myra, I will clear my schedule. We need to, <laughs> we need to get to the bottom of this. We need justice. And, um, <laughs> Chris, I admire your commitment to this story. I told you, he isn't just interested. He is invested. Yes, and he seems very excited. So excited. And Chris didn't just want to pop in this episode as a question asker. He wanted to help out with the reporting, even though he's not a reporter. So what do you think I did? I think you took him up on it. Yeah, I took him up on it. Uh, nice Hi, to I'm Connie. Nice to meet you, Chris. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you <laughs> we meet in Royalton proper at a little coffee shop and sit outside directly across from the town center gazebo where, fun fact, Chris plays first chair trombone in the Royalton town band. I let Chris and Connie know that I'm just here to support them conducting their own interview. So, loud wind be damned, I do my best to be a human microphone stand while they talk. And Chris does not come to play. Do you, you like, remember, did you hear anything about when it was um, burning down, like... No, my sister called me and said it was on fire. I live in Brookfield, so it's pretty far. Were you working there at the time? No, it started at around, I don't know, I would estimate it was probably lit around 7. But by the time I got there, it was out. You know it was lit twice, right? Yeah. But what happened was um, someone drove by and the front steps were on fire. And they had a like a dog blanket in their car, and there were actually two people, but they're completely anonymous. I have no idea who it was, but they put it out. And they said, "Okay, the excitement's over. This was yeah, a failed it, it, arson yeah, attempt." Yeah, failed arson attempt. Everybody Everyone go, go home. home. You can open up in the morning. Right. We're good. <laughs> yeah. They said, "You know, we will patrol this." Okay. And I said, "Okay, good." I went home. Put my pajamas on, climb into bed. The sugar house is on fire again. I said, do I really need to go down? They're like, yeah, you do. 
and it was completely engulfed and I couldn't even drive up there. It was a five alarm fire. Right. Like, what was it like that morning when you came and there was five fire, tr- there was a bunch of fire trucks there? It was just surreal. I, I just couldn't believe it. And I couldn't get close to it. I was like, man, who would do this? Was somebody seen near the site with a gas can? I heard people, I mean, I've heard all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Um, I heard that. And I told the police that. Because there have been recently a lot of kitchen fires at diners around here, so this feels like something more suspicious. It, It was not a kitchen fire. I met with the fire marshals and I gave them permission to investigate and stuff and um, they, one a guy came with a, a accelerant sniffing dog, yeah. beautiful white lab. What, what they do is they'll, they'll, he'll give a command and they'll go and sniff and then they sit if they find something and he'll get a treat and he did that the whole length of the back of the building. So it was clear, and you could smell it. Yeah. You could smell gas. They just doused it. Oh, geez. The plot thickens. Right? Right. So we have the anonymous people who put out the first fire with a dog blanket. Yeah. And then someone possibly walking around with a gas can. But if I'm honest, Josh, no one I spoke to had any names to accompany their tea. There's definitely a feeling that perhaps folks have their guesses about who did it, but don't want to say. It's all very hush-hush. Sure, sure. Well, Myra, who knew a little breakfast joint could be such fodder for BLS's first true crime episode? (laughs) It is the first. I checked with Angela and she said yes. (laughs) But like I said, they were really good pancakes. Even the local cops thought so. More on that when we come back. Welcome back to Brave Little State. I'm Myra Flynn, and today I'm chatting with my colleague Josh Crane about the mysterious 2019 Halloween fire that burned the Vermont landmark Eaton Sugar House to the ground. Josh, are you ready for it to get even weirder? Yes, and also it gets weirder? I mean, I think so, because so far you'd think somebody might have seen something, right? Like passersby or folks on the hunt for good candy or say... The Vermont State Police? It's right down the street from the State Police Barracks. Whose Royalton Barracks are a mere three-minute drive away. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They would come in periodically. They invited us in. We did coffee with a cop with them. And coffee with a cop was like... If you have any questions, it's kind of a, a, a build a relationship with the community, community thing. Actually, we just had one the re- weekend previously. So I was like, oh man, this is not a good track record to set. The new voice you're hearing here is Loretta Stallnaker, the Royalton Chief of Police. Loretta was on the job and in the area at the time Eaton's burned down. And she also thinks this fire was not your average fire. It's just not normal for a fire to be put out and then start someplace else just by itself. The original detective on the case has since retired, and I wasn't able to get in touch with him. And though I'm no Sherlock Holmes... That left Loretta to bear the brunt of my very best impression. I asked her some tough questions, and she did not shy away. First up, Loretta, where were you on the night of this fire? Like, since you were so close and all. Um, So, well, just so you know, I wasn't personally there until later. 
Um, I had two officers on that night and they assisted with traffic control with the fire department. Um, and the arson unit came in the next day. Usually they don't come in. The fire chief uh, will confer and then um, say, yeah, we believe this is this. Somebody set this. And then we call in the arson unit because that's their specialty. We don't have that training. And then why did this building have such an intense fire? Five fire trucks seems like a lot for any building in Royalton, maybe even in all of Vermont. Or everything inside is still dry and it goes like, you know. So that's was part of the problem is the inside was so dry. The, the wood was really old and it just went up. And then I have kind of one like tough question I'd like to ask. And you can oh. I know. <laughs> you know, Connie said she she really paints the story well on tape. She was like, you know, I got the phone call that it was. On I basically just straight up told Loretta that Connie said the cops said that they would patrol the building right after the first fire. But clearly something went wrong because second fire. Right. Um, So I'm wondering, like, what happened with that, like that missing time? Like, was it patrolled? And like, so it was. And so my officer, uh, Officer Layton and Officer McRae were on and they actually told me they had said we'd just been through here like 20 minutes, 20 minutes previously checked, you know, the building um, drove through the area. But and they actually had were on a, you know, on a call on the other end of town when this one came in, finished up and came right over. So with only one cruiser on, it's luck of the draw if we actually see something in when it's happening. Uh, Josh, this is how this whole story goes. Like the second you think you're getting somewhere, the accountability hot potato just gets passed. Yeah, that's super frustrating. Did you ask Loretta about that high visibility we keep talking about? Like the fact that it was Halloween with a bunch of trick-or-treaters, so there must have been enough people out that night to see anything? I mean, I would draw that same conclusion, but Loretta says the high traffic evening was actually part of the problem. So yeah, it's very hard in a well-known place like that, that allows people to park after hours that to know who, what is what. Interesting. Okay, last question for now. What about the person with the gas can? Was that fact or fiction? Josh, I got you. And Loretta says that was kind of a bust. Um, We did have a gasoline can on scene, but we weren't sure if it was from the maintenance man leaving it from from the lawnmower or if it was the buildings. We we never did find that out. Um, Or if it was somebody who brought it. There were no fingerprints on it that, you know, and to take fingerprints, it's it's very difficult because you have to have this very specific surfaces, something like pebbly like that. You can't get a good you can't get a fingerprint off of. And then two people actually called 911 on each other because one of the um, one, one of the persons that called 911 said she saw a car up up there. Well, we were able to track that person down and she was actually someone that was on 911 as well. She had seen the flames pulled up there and then decided, oh, crap, I need to get out of here because it's on fire. So um, it just it ended up being they were both on 911, one thinking the other was, you know, kind of suspicious. Oh, so they they kind of pegged each other. as Yes. Yes. So that pan didn't lead out. My final question to Loretta was pretty simple. Do you have a hunch? Do you have a like do you have a hunch of maybe who you think? I have a hunch. I have a hunch. People don't just torch buildings, you know, like that for anything. 
But again... Unfortunately, yeah, I have no proof. I feel like I've been on the edge of my seat this entire time. You and me both, my friend. And I hate to say it, but in spite of my best efforts, Loretta would not reveal her hunch to me. In fact, no one would reveal their hunch to me. Royalton is a small community, and it seems no one wants to stoke the gossip flames, so to speak. I think you mean the tea flames. Nice, Josh. Yes, yes, the tea flames. Yes. (laughs) Um, Anyway, this is why this fire was never officially classified as arson. Instead, it was labeled an incendiary fire. So I can't tell you what it's how it started, right? That's Sergeant Matthew Hill. We meet up at the State Trooper Barracks in Williston, where he's based. My official title is I'm a detective sergeant. I'm assigned to the Fire and Explosion Investigation Unit. Basically, Hill helps investigate fires all over the state. And a big part of why I want to talk to him is not only because he gets the magic of Eden's Pancakes. That's <laughs> it. I know it sounds cliche, but I mean, the pancakes. But also because whenever we talk about this kind of investigative stuff, we want to have a police report. And I did request one more than once. The Vermont Department of Public Safety didn't provide them to me before my deadline, citing, and quote, the need for consultation, which shall be conducted with all practicable speed, with another agency having a substantial interest in the determination of the request, end quote. Sergeant Hill, who went to the scene of the crime to investigate it shortly after, had seen the police report. He shared some details with me. One is that the accelerant-sniffing white lab, who I learned is named Guava, sniffed gasoline all around the perimeter of the building. But, surprisingly, this fire still cannot technically be called arson. So when we do, when we, when we do a scene examination, up until last year, we would classify a fire into one of four categories. It would either be an incendiary fire, meaning it was, it was set intentionally, uh, an accidental fire, and that could cover all kinds of stuff from product failure to uh, a smoking fire and a couch, uh, left something cooking on the stove. Then we would classify natural fires, so it would be like a lightning strike. And then there's undetermined. So which fire did this fire classify under? This fire was deemed incendiary. I mean, incendiary fire seems like a redundant phrase to me. So why not just call it arson? I know, right? I mean, I've only used the word incendiary in regard to soaring guitar solos. (laughs) Um, So an incendiary fire is the result of direct human involvement where someone lights a fire where they shouldn't. In order to call it arson, you need the someone. So an, an arson is a charge, unless you have somebody that comes forward, you have eyewitnesses, or you have somebody on tape doing something. Then it can't be called arson. I just had to ask Sergeant Hill. It's been three years since this fire. What's the holdup on finding the human? Why didn't this ever make it to official arson? People just stopped talking, didn't want to talk to us anymore about it. Right. Not terribly surprising. Speaking of head people in charge, Josh, do you recognize this voice? I think yes. Well, you should, because that's one of our bosses. I'm Mark Davis. I'm an editor in the newsroom. I wanted to talk to Mark because prior to being VPR's managing editor, he was a crime guy. Yeah, we called it cops and courts. So crimes, accidents, fires, that kind of thing. And the bulk of that time was spent in the Upper Valley. I was a reporter at the Valley News. Not far from South Royalton. And Mark also thinks this fire was strange, for all the same reasons we do. What, what I was struck by was, uh, on the surface, 
you might think that this is a case that would get solved easily for a few reasons. One, Eaton's is like a super prominent place. This is not some random home off a dirt road, off a dirt road. Eaton's is a community institution. Tourists know it well. There's also a prominent location. It's right off the interstate. Like you can actually see it. There's an exit right there. Um, and then the, the third piece of it is literally the state police barracks just happens to be, it's got to be like two miles away. So the people investigating this, they're right there. They may have even been able to smell it that night. You might sit back and say, well, if there's ever a fire that's going to get solved, it's going to be this one. But I was also thinking that's very unlikely. Just again, experience tells you that a lot of these cases just never get solved. It's a lot harder than you might think. And I think that this point Mark makes is a good one. In a culture of true crime TV and podcasts, should we be more patient when it comes to solving mysteries? I guess 2019 really wasn't that long ago. I mean, there is a that's a thing in the police world. There is something known as the CSI effect that they have to deal with jurors who have this expectation that everything is neat and solved in an hour. Uh, yeah, absolutely. For for lots of reasons, things aren't solved as easily as as I think people might assume they are. And Connie Poulin says something else feels strange to her about this case, that she wasn't more closely investigated. The, the, and another thing that really blew my mind is I would ask me questions. They, did they, never, never, never. Wow. I mean, because it's usually the owner. Sure. Oh, they didn't investigate you. No. Oh. Right, you weren't a suspect. No. You weren't a suspect. No. Nobody ever questioned me. I was like, wow, that's weird. I asked Chief Loretta Stallnaker if indeed Connie was not investigated. Her official answer? I don't know. Though she does note something must have been done to look into the situation as its standard protocol, she also notes, and quote, I've known Connie forever. I would have been very surprised if she were the one. Josh, I feel like you're going to come out of this episode using the word T from here on out. <laughs> I, I can't promise that I will, but I also can't promise that I won't. Awesome. Okay, so now tell me that you do know what an OG is. <laughs> come on. I mean, I'm not a total alien, an original <laughs> gangster. That's right. <laughs> I was born October 3rd, 1927. That's Cliff Eaton. The OG, the Eaton of Eaton Sugar House, and he's 94 years old. Cliff purchased the Sugar House in 1963 and started it as a cider mill. He went on to run it as a sugar house and then a restaurant and eventually some combination of the two. Though in the end, he says, the pancakes won. It, it's, it's, not an, it's not an easy business to run you. Uh, but what we found was that the restaurant became more and more popular over the years. So Connie owned the sugar house for 16 years, but Cliff owned it for 40. Exactly. So I figured it's possible that Connie wasn't the target for this incendiary fire, right? Maybe it was Cliff. But again... I don't know of anyone that would have had a grudge against me that uh, would have wanted to do that. And I have no idea... And I'll step in here to say that for all we don't know in this episode, the lack of someone to blame certainly does not mitigate the collective loss. How did it make you feel? 
hey, lose it how, how can you express how that? I mean, it's been my baby from from day one. And in March of 1928, uh, my, my father was running a sawmill and my mother was uh, gathering a sap. My father would boil at night. After speaking with Cliff, it's easy to understand why the sugar house was such a success over the years. He basically has maple running through his veins. The sap must have got into my blood because <laughs> I'm still doing maple today. Are you disappointed, Josh? I'm disappointed. I never had a chance to try their pancakes, but what are you referring to specifically? <laughs> well, just like all of the not knowing, right? There's just still so much we don't know in regards to this question about what happened. Don't get me wrong, I'd like to know, but it's also kind of cool to just learn about all the history here and to also speculate a little bit. Plus, like, how cool would it be if somehow this episode just cracked the case wide open or something? Agreed. I mean, that would be ideal. And I guess I don't mind not knowing so much because you know what a whole lot of not knowing can prepare you for? The apocalypse. I mean, some do call it that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But in general, I'd say for Connie, this was all good practice for the uncertainty that all of us would be dealing with. After all, there's more than one way to burn a business down. Fast forward to now, we have a pandemic and restaurants are closing Mm -hmm. left and right. Mm -hmm. Is there some part of you that feels like... Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, what? (laughs) I know what you're going to say. What am I going to say? That it was a blessing. Connie received an insurance settlement after Eaton's burned down. I asked her what the amount was, and she told me she really didn't think that was anyone's business. It's a hard thing to verbalize, but we would not have survived that. This pandemic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, who's going to get pancakes to go? (laughs) Those were good pancakes. They were, but they're better hot. Thanks so much for listening to the show. And thanks to Chris Jacobson for the great question. If you have any information about the Eaton's fire, you can call the Vermont Arson Tip Award Program at 1-800-32-ARSON. That's 1-800-322-7766. If you have a question about Vermont you'd like us to answer in an upcoming episode, ask it at bravelittlestate.org. While you're there, you can explore our archive, sign up for the BLS newsletter, and vote on the question you want us to tackle next. You can also say hi on Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit at BraveStateVT. This episode was produced and mixed by Myra Flynn, with digital production by Josh Crane, editing by all of us, and a very special thanks to our colleague Mark Davis. Thanks also to Alicia Carter, First Branch Coffee in Royalton, and Alex Burns. Ty Gibbons composed our theme music, other music by Blue Dot Sessions. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public Radio. 
If you're a fan of the show, please make a gift at bravelittlestate.org slash donate, or just tell your friends to listen. I'm Angela Evansy. We'll be back soon with a question about a certain jam band. Why do people like fish and how they become such a big part of Vermont music culture? Until then, remember, be brave, ask questions. Thank you.